This is episode 24 of Ripe Good Scholar, the source material for Romeo and Juliet. Brooke versus Shakespeare. So the big difference is in Brooke's Romeo was a freaking narc. Just, right? I'm just like, <laughs> Romeo, you jerk! This is Ian Desher, author of the William Shakespeare's Star Wars and Pop Shakespeare series, and you're listening to Ripe Good Scholar. Welcome to Ripe Good Scholar with Sarah Plaskett. Sarah believes that in order to fully understand the relevance of Shakespeare's works in the 21st century, you must examine the history those plays have travelled through since Shakespeare wrote them. Ripe Good Scholar is the show that dives into the archives, theatres and museums to explore the historical evolution of Shakespeare's plays. Join us in examining when and why they were written in the first place, as well as how they have been utilised around the world since then, so that you can see for yourself how the plays continue to be as relevant today as they were in the 16th century. And now, here's Sarah. Hello, and welcome to Ripe Good Scholar. Most of us are probably familiar with Shakespeare's play, Romeo and Juliet, particularly those of us listening to this podcast. The story of the star-crossed lovers destroyed by a family feud is often one of the first choices as an introduction to Shakespeare. However, like most of Shakespeare's plays, Shakespeare did not come up with the original concept. He likely worked off an English translation of an Italian story. I read through those translations to compare and contrast those versions with the one Shakespeare wrote. If you want to look at those sources and additional reading, head over to ripegoodscholar.com ep24. That's ripegoodscholar.com ep24. Now, let's head to Verona. So today we're going to be talking about Romeo and Juliet. I think that this play is easily one of the most popular in the Shakespeare canon. It's one of the first that we learn in school, and it's one of the most widely adapted. I'm familiar with it. I mean, we've even gone so far as having Nomeo and Juliet, so I think we're... Wait, what? What? You haven't heard of Nomeo and Juliet? I have not. Is it <laughs> Romeo and Juliet, but with gnomes? Yeah. There's two gardens of gnomes. Oh, wow. Yeah, the the ending, it is a children's movie, so not everybody dies. Now I'm disappointed. I was sold up until that moment. <laughs> okay, well, we'll have to find Romeo and Juliet. Change the it. ending? <laughs> <laughs> so, I think it's safe to say that it's kind of fully woven into the fabric of our culture. I'd say so. However, I think most people would be surprised to learn that Romeo and Juliet is actually based off another story. Yeah, I didn't know that until you brought it up. What's interesting to me is that there are many people who've probably heard of Juliet's Balcony in Verona. Yeah, I'm vaguely aware of it. So there's a house in Verona that belonged to the Capaletti family who had a daughter, Juliet, and how convenient there's a balcony looking over the garden. I mean, it all sounds fairly legit. So that became Juliet's balcony, and, you know, they rolled in those tourist dollars. However, when I started looking into this, I couldn't find much evidence for the story of Romeo and Juliet being based in any sort of actual fact. Wait, wait. So you're telling pe me people would lie 
for money. I know. I'm trying not to destroy your faith in humanity here, but it's hard. First Nomeo and Juliet, now this. <laughs> However, the story was based off an Italian novella by Matteo Bandello. Most people assume that the novella was based off of stories Bandello had heard. I think some of this is, one, just the nature of storytelling, and two, I think they're really trying to like hold out hope that this is based off of some sort of real feud. <laughs> I just don't know that it is. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure I've ever heard of, you know, Italian families being angry at each other. Yeah, they're usually a very calm people. I grew up in Youngstown, I know. <laughs> now, Shakespeare didn't speak Italian, so he worked off of largely the poem adaptation written by Arthur Brooke and first published in 1562. Oh, okay. There was also a prose version written by William Painter as a chapter in his Palace of Pleasure. However, it's pretty much it's pretty much the poem in prose form. He called his collection of stories Palace of Pleasure. Yeah, I don't really know where all that's based on, so. Wow. Yeah, the Renaissance was fun. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that they went through book titles that quickly, that, you know, he got stuck with Palace of Pleasure. <laughs> I mean, have you read some of the titles, like the full titles of things? Oh, God, they're awful. Do you think that, like, the full title of this one was, like, an account of the palaces of pleasure in the literary world in the years leading up to the year of our Lord, 1560? Because I think it'd be that. Probably. Now, what's interesting, though, is as far as I can tell, and, you know, research will continue as I look into more source material for Shakespeare, but Brooke adapted this one Bandello story. It's interesting because Bandello is a source for a few other Shakespeare plays, including the Claudio subplot in Much Ado About Nothing. Oh. So I just find it very interesting that Bandello had this influence on Shakespeare. So either he was being adapted by a lot of English writers, which is certainly possible. No, no, no. Probably even likely. I mean, come on, if Hollywood has taught me every anything, it's that popular forms of storytelling are always entirely unique and creative. They don't copy each other, come on. Yeah, that's why Shakespeare definitely didn't copy lots and lots and lots and lots of things. Oh, right, yeah, right, 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 right. And this was before plagiarism laws, too. They went hog wild. Yeah. And I think also a lot of them would look and go, hey, that Bandello story was popular. I'm all right one. Another reason that I found Bandello worth noting was that there are elements in the Bandello poem that aren't seen in Brooke. For example, Romeo's initial crush being Rosalind. Yeah. And also, apparently, Mercutio was, like, a way more fun character in Bandello than he is in Brooke, but we'll get to Mercutio in Brooke because it's hilarious. Ooh. Um, Mer Mercutio is, like, the one character everyone likes, even people who have to read it and don't really like Shakespeare. They're like, this Mercutio's funny. No idea what's the spit about the Queen that thing. 
Yeah, that's why that gets cut a lot. As far as I can tell, I didn't see Rosalind mentioned anywhere in Painter. To me, that likely indicates that there were multiple adaptations of Bandello going around okay. that Shakespeare would have had access to, or they were just stories people told. I mean, it makes sense. You, you've laid out a strong argument. For the most part, plot point for plot point, Shakespeare copied Brooke. If it happened in Shakespeare, it happened in Brooke. Nice. So what I really want to go through Instead of just kind of going through and being like, and then this happened in both, and this happened in both, and this happened in both, because that's the whole story, is go through where I see some of the most uh, stark similarities, and then actually where they differ some. Because Brooke sends the reader away with a very distinct point of view on everything that happened. What, what do you mean? Brooke goes in hard on those lusty teenagers and all of the neglectful adults in their life. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, that's a fair interpretation. Yes, whereas Shakespeare leaves it a little more open to the point where we're really sitting there saying, like, oh, it's such a tragedy, young love laws. Like, Romeo and Juliet is considered one of the greatest love stories by a lot of different standards we've had a podcast where we discussed that we'll leave that there but brooke has a point of view and brooke makes that point of view known from the very start of the play Ooh. well his poem uh spill the tea baby his introduction reminded me of the like call to the muses but it wasn't really that. It was kind of laying out the purpose of writing such a story. And so he's talking about how stories about good men can lead people to good deeds. So, to like effect, by sundry means, the good man's example biddeth men to be good. And the evil man's mischief warneth men not to be evil. To this good end serve all ill ends of ill beginnings. And to this end, good reader, is the tragical matter written to describe unto thee a couple of unfortunate lovers thralling themselves to unhonest desire, neglecting the authority and advice of parents and friends, conferring their principal counsels with drunken gossips and superstitious friars, the naturally fit instruments of unchastity, Attempting all adventures of peril for the attaining of their wished lust. Using auricular confession, the key of whoredom and treason for furtherance of their purpose. Abusing the honorable name of lawful marriage to cloak the shame of stolen contracts. Finally, by all means of unhonest life, hasting to most unhappy death. So how does he really feel? Right? I'm going to start calling shotgun marriages uh, stolen contracts now. Brooke does not hold back. And we'll see a few other instances where Brooke throws a little shade at characters. He does it a lot. <laughs> I especially like superstitious friars. <laughs> because uh, you know those Protestant English were just always down for dunking on Catholics. That's fair. Even in um, that initial 
segment I read, we can see some influences on Shakespeare. You know, I think of, to this good end serve all ill ends of ill beginnings. And to me, that's just reminiscent of these violent delights have violent ends. Yeah, that... It, it, that does seem very similar, except that these violent delights have violent ends is much pithier and more uh, easily parsed. And I think that's the thing about Shakespeare, is that he takes the little bits of good in other writers and makes it better. You know, he takes the story and molds it to, one, be good for the stage, which is a shift. And two, he just had a gift with language. Yeah. So he took something that's like, oh, that's pretty good. And then he'd make it better. Yeah, you know, polish it up a bit. There's another moment in the play where I find an echo of Brooke in the Shakespeare play where the Capulets notice Romeo at the party. Yeah. And Lord Capulet tells Tybalt not to worry about it. They leave him alone. Brooke leaves it a little up in the air. He was like, oh, maybe they just didn't want to spoil the party. Maybe they were kind of heeding the warning of that the prince laid down earlier. Who knows why? But they did. They left him alone. Whereas Shakespeare is like, no, they definitely left him alone because of what the prince said. <laughs> That's why they did that. But I think that even exchange that, I mean, it, it doesn't bring a ton to the scene. You know, you have this slight exchange between them. You get a better idea of the dynamics between the two warring families and, and Lord Capulet and Tybalt. And, but, you know, Shakespeare just said, no, I'm just going to, they have a reason. I'm going to give them one. Well, yeah, I think it also uh, speaks to their different interests. Uh, Brooks was interested in telling uh, young people why they shouldn't hastily get married to Bone. Whereas uh, Shakespeare was interested in the actual characters and why they behaved the way they did. And he wants you to empathize with them. I think also to Shakespeare, based off of the prologue and epilogue, you know, the final soliloquy of the play, he wanted to make a statement about warring families also. Mm. So he might put a little more emphasis on it that these this young love was torn apart by the warring families yeah that makes sense really their focuses just kind of speak to the different intentions they had now we get to mercutio mercutio so romeo sees juliet across the ballroom mm-hmm she was dancing with someone i think she was dancing with mercutio but anyway she sits down Mercutio is on one side of her, Romeo is on the other. Each has a hand. This is where we get Mercutio's defining characteristic, according to Brooke, is his cold, cold hands. What? Mercutio has cold, cold hands. Cold, cold hands. Cold, cold hands. This is a strange thing to mention. How cold do your hands have to be that someone believes that it should live on for posterity? I don't know. But Juliet comments to Romeo on how much warmer his hand is than Mercutio's cold, cold hand. Again, apparently Bandello wrote Mercutio with a little more personality, which, like, it's a kind of low bar. Like, that's one you trip over. <laughs> he made him more interesting than just being cold hands. 
sense. You know, Brooks was like, listen, this has nothing to do with why we should be angry at lustful Catholics. So I'm just going to cut it. He can keep the cold hands. That's the important bit, right? It just, I just am like, why? Why is that? Why is that the important bit? We need a named character so that we know whose hands were cold. Otherwise, the story makes no sense. We have them separating and then finding out they're from their rival families. But the best part is, Brooke throws some shade at Romeo for not finding out Juliet's name during their entire conversation. <laughs> I mean, fair. Listen, I've been there, but also still fair. It just... I just was very like old man yelling at clown oh wow i mean for start he's clearly a finger wagging old man but also i want his commentary on every film and play i ever see great he's just he's so sassy we have another echo of brooke in the balcony scene brooke mentions and painter both mention very specifically that juliet places her head on her hand uh-huh and as I was reading it in their works, it felt weird. I was like, why are we just so specific about her head-to-hand placement? Mm -hmm. But it reminded me of then Romeo saying that I may be a glove upon that hand. Uh. So here again, I think we see, while I think it's still weird for Brooke to focus so heavily on exactly where her hands were you saw shakespeare bring that into something that romeo noticed yeah and again it's something that's kind of weird and off-putting in brooke that in shakespeare seems a little sweet yeah although you know the image of romeo as a glove has always weirded me out i took it very literally and it's disturbing yeah i mean that sounds disturbing maybe stop taking metaphors literally from this point forward the play is pretty much the same as the poem. Romeo goes to Friar Lawrence to say, hey, we want to get secretly married. Help. Brooke, at first, shades Friars, but actually kind of compliments Friar Lawrence. Oh? This barefoot Friar, girt with corn, his grayish weed, for he of Francis' order was a Friar, as I read. Not as the most was he, a gross, unlearned fool, but Doctor of Divinity preceded he in school. I just like how he's like, he's not as dumb as most of them. Wow. Friar Lawrence at first is like, oh, I don't know. This might be a bad idea. Although we could end this feud. Fine, I'll marry you. Yeah, he talks himself into it right quick. Yes, he does. Well, and Romeo contributes some. And so both Brooke and Shakespeare are like, you know, oh, was he won over by the argument of a young lover? Uh, no. Anyway. <laughs> um, they get secret married. Romeo gives the nurse a rope ladder so that he may get onto the balcony to consummate the marriage. Yeah. As I said, from this point, pretty much the same, except the timeline shifts a little bit. In Brooke, Romeo and Juliet are married for a while. Like, a few months. Oh? Yes, with Romeo sneaking to her room and having fun times they, they, they don't try to make it public after months of secret marriage yeah it's kind of a bad plan which at this point again i'm like maybe i don't blame brooke for being judgy <laughs> so shakespeare of course 
shortens this timeline because that just does not translate to the stage. Yeah. Now, one thing he does change kind of significantly, I feel, is the timing of Tybalt's death. So in Shakespeare, they get married. Romeo is booping around town all happy, knowing he's gonna get some badonkadonk later that night. Yeah. that's when the fight where Mercutio and Tybalt die. Oh, yeah. Okay. What's funny in Brooke, (laughs) what? Brooke does not hold back on what this whole scene ends up looking like. It's a huge fight in the street. There is lots of blood. There are limbs. Ooh. Brooke is like, no, this was actually really terrible. It wasn't just like, ooh, dibby dib. Ooh, whoa. <laughs> like, Let me talk for three minutes as I slowly bleed to death. Should we help you? No, I must get this out. Literally talks about like severed arms laying in the road. Ooh. Yeah, like dead bodies everywhere. It's a massacre. But everyone who saw the scene agrees that Dibbled started it. <laughs> Now, in Brooke, this happens after Romeo and Juliet's marriage has been consummated. In Shakespeare, it happens before. Mm. And I think that's critical because a marriage, by those standards, didn't happen if it wasn't consummated. You could get it annulled. Okay, so... It is a little weird that Shakespeare is very clear that they didn't do it until after he killed her cousin. It almost makes that moment higher stakes. Mm, true. Because now Romeo has to go to his wife to see, are we even still married? Because I just killed your cousin. Whereas in Brooke, it's kind of too little too late. Those two are married. Yeah. So you lose that little bit of drama. You still have Julia talking herself into like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe Romeo killed my cousin. You know what? It's fine. It wasn't his fault. <laughs> you know, I know Tibble, and he had it coming. Yeah, that, it sounds like that sounds like Tibble probably deserved Listen, it. Listen, we've all had cousins that we know probably deserve to get killed in a street fight. In Brooke, when Juliet hears the news that Tibble has been killed by Romeo, who was now exiled. She kind of falls into, like, a comatose state for a minute. Like, the nurse is like, oh, no, she's dead. And I'm like, wait, is this where this happens? Have we gotten this off the rails? No, she wakes up. She's fine. Oh, okay. Just one of those average uh, comas. Yeah, you know, just sometimes you just slip into a coma. It's not a big deal. You get some rough news, you gotta fall into a coma. So the separation of the two lovers pretty much follows... You know, the shape Brooks to Shakespeare, same old table. Yeah. Romeo gets the news that Juliet has died from his servant. All right. Now, Brooke goes into a whole elaborate story as to why the friar who was supposed to deliver the note that actually Juliet's not dead and you should come and get her and go live happily ever after. He goes into a whole long explanation about how like friars weren't allowed to travel alone and he went to go get another friar and then oops, he got locked up because plague. And Shakespeare's pretty much like, he wasn't allowed to leave the town because plague. Done. Brooke took like a page and a half. Did he, was it just an excuse to be mean to friars again? Probably. I don't know. Romeo hears that Juliet's dead and decides to go find some poison. So he goes to an apothecary, specifically finds a poor one. (laughs) What? 
so that he can offer to pay him lots and lots of money to give him poison. Because selling poison was illegal. Oh. The apothecary was not supposed to be selling people poison. Well. But Romeo's like, look at all this money. And, you know, the apothecary's like, well, my kids haven't eaten in a few days. So sure, here you go, strange teenager. So now Romeo, before heading back to Verona, writes a note to his father. Explaining everything. Including... The name of the apothecary. What? Was bribed into selling him poison. What? I know he's a little. Wait sandwich. a minute. Wait. He uses his financial privilege to to, to to bully this this poor man whose children are starving into giving him poison, and then narks on him. Yes. What? No. It gets worse in a little bit. But anyway. He's the worst. Oh, I'm totally on Tybalt's side now. (laughs) Romeo comes back, finds Juliet. Now, what I found interesting was that Shakespeare decided Paris needed to die. I mean, obviously. Like, Paris in Brooke, like, I don't even know that we actually see Paris that much in Brooke. I don't remember. He he does not function with much like Shakespeare's play. He does not have a big role. Yeah, but in Romeo plus Juliet, he's played by Paul Rudd. Would you want that movie to exist without Paul Rudd's beautiful, ageless face? Yeah, but why did he have to die? Things have to die in Shakespeare. Paris lives in Brooke. Shakespeare killed him, because why not? Like, it's... Anyway. I I remember in uh, high school, my teacher said it was that way the, the, the Montagues, the Capulets, and the Prince's family all lost two people during the course of the play. And I was like, that's kind of a... Like, now looking back, that seems like kind of a stretch. Does Mercutio count as both the Prince's family and the Montagues? No, remember uh, when Mr. Montague... I think his name's Mr. Montague. Uh, rolls up. He's like... Oh, BT dubs, my wife is dead. It's just, oh, she was so broken up over Romeo. She done died. Oh, right. Those are my favorite Shakespeare deaths. Yeah. Oh, she done died. We got to keep the numbers even. Shakespeare's like, oh, no, I need to kill another Montague. My wife done died. <laughs> yeah, that's how it's phrased, right? In Shakespeare, the the whole story is discovered, and the, the families come together and stop warring, and love wins over fighting not for brooke though oh for brooke we get a trial of the corpses the adults oh (laughs) okay that's fair yeah yeah yeah. try those adults for being completely irresponsible basically what happens in brooke is everybody shows up to the tomb and sees like a dead romeo and a freshly dead julia which they're like wait a minute wait you should you should be deader than this prior lawrence is like Oh, you won't believe the crazy story. And they're like, you're right. We don't believe it. You murdered these teenagers. <laughs> I love the whole trial. Oh, because wow. Because Friar Lawrence goes into this long, like the trial starts. And he goes into this long, long monologue about like good and evil and morals and God and I'm just like, how is this helping your legal case, sir? And then finally, after his big sermon, he goes, you can also just ask the nurse. 
So she knows. So they're like, okay, go fetch the nurse. And like the nurse corroborates the story, obviously. What gets me is she didn't corroborate it until then. Because no one asked. I don't know. I guess they're going to kill that priest better than me losing my job. Uh, During the trial too, Romeo's servant turns up with the letter that he apparently never delivered to Romeo's father. (laughs) Why are all the servants so bad at their jobs? Now remember this letter that gets brought to the Oh, the the apothecary. (laughs) Romeo, you narc. The nurse is banished from Verona for not telling anybody. Fair. Especially because she was about to let Juliet get married again. (laughs) (laughs) Like, she was in there like, you know what, Paris will probably be a better husband anyway, Juliet. Oh, God. She's a bad adult. Romeo's servant gets spared because he was just following orders, I guess. Okay. He maybe got to talk to him about, like, hey, maybe next time deliver the letter from my dead son. Oh, yeah, maybe you should do that. The friar lives out his days as a hermit because they kind of don't know what to do with him because everybody likes him so much. (laughs) But he also (laughs) was integral to the death of these children. Wait. So she gets... The nurse gets banished and he doesn't have to... Sexism is real and it's been around for hundreds of years. There's one more punishment that gets handed down because the apothecary... Oh, no! ...is executed. No! This man was bribed into selling a poison. Like, Romeo specifically sought out a poor apothecary. Someone whose family was in need. Gave them money for poison. And then narked and got him executed. Oh my god. Right? Isn't Romeo just the worst? He's the worst! Juliet deserved better. Team Paris all the way. Team Paris. Tybalt did nothing wrong. Okay, no. No, that's not. Except for those arms in the street. Those were wrong. <laughs> he should have cleaned those up. So, and that's where Brooke ends. We have normal kind of Shakespeare adaptations going on. Shortened timelines, character changes. Nothing out of the ordinary. I think the key difference between the two is the tone. Because, as, as I touched on earlier, Shakespeare really brings these characters to life in a way that you empathize with, and it's about how these warring, feuding families accomplish nothing but tearing young love apart and resulting in just unnecessary death. Whereas Brooks was finger-waving at lusty children for being lusty children. And the adults for not intervening. <laughs> I mean... Fair, the adults should have intervened. I mean, that's that's pretty much it. You know, that's that's Brooke versus Shakespeare. So the big difference is in Brooks, Romeo was a frickin' narc. Just right? I'm just like, <laughs> Romeo, you jerk. And then like, I don't know. I just and then and then they killed him. <laughs> The nurse was banished. Nothing happened to the friar. He, like, decided to be a hermit. And the, and the impoverished, impoverished apothecary was murdered. Uh, this is... Uh, eat the rich. 
Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Don't forget to go to ripegoodscholar.com EP24 for even more information on Romeo and Juliet. The show notes for every episode are filled with additional resources and facts that can help you further explore this topic. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review. It helps others find our podcast so our community of scholars can grow. Also, make sure you are on our mailing list to receive a free digital download and be kept up to date on everything going on over at Ripe Good Scholar. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Ripe Good Scholar to keep the Shakespeare fun going all day, every day. That's all for now. We'll see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Ripe Good Scholar. As always, the deepest dives and best discussions are happening after the show at ripegoodscholar.com. Join us over there to lend your perspective and engage with fellow scholars. We would love to hear from you. That's all for today. And remember, our court shall be a little academe, still and contemplative in living art.